No matter the game, understanding the other player always helps you make better moves. This logic applies to the startup world too. When you've been on both sides of the table, you have a unique vantage point. Most founders I know really value when an investor has been in the trenches and built a company. The learning process is accelerated and you deeply empathize with the inevitable challenges along the way. Julio Vasconcelos is a great example of this. Prolific entrepreneur and investor who happened to write me a check in the early days of Viva Real. Julio was Facebook's first country manager in Brazil back in 2010. That same year, he started Peixe Urbano, which became a leading local commerce and services company in Brazil, later expanding to six other countries in Latin America and eventually being acquired by Baidu. He's been an angel investor ever since and is also the co-founder of two VC funds, Canary and Atlantico. In this episode, we'll talk about what makes an incredible investor, what makes an incredible founder, good practices of having a board and sitting on a board, dealing with advice and external opinions, and the challenge of balancing emotional involvement and rational thinking. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Julio, welcome to the podcast. Uh, where are you, by the way? I'm in Rio. Great. First of all, welcome you to the podcast. And for the audience that doesn't know, you know, you were one of my first angel investors at Viveral. You were always really helpful, good friend, and a good advisor, which I'm grateful for. I think everybody needs early people to bet on you when you're an entrepreneur because it's hard. I think that when we look at kind of where we are, it's it's kind of come full circle because you invested in me. I ended up investing in Canary, which you started. It's this virtuous cycle. Had tons of incredible operation experience in companies, starting companies, uh, and now you're an investor at Atlantico. What's more fun, founding companies or funding companies? I think that running companies as an entrepreneur and as a CEO, I think what people say is, is very true that the highs are much higher and the lows are much lower, right? I don't know. I don't know where the average is. But I definitely think that you need to have the stomach for the volatility. If you haven't really lived life in the trenches and seen the roller coaster ride that it is to start a company, you need to make sure that you're you're aware of that and and know that you're going to be very happy sometimes and very sad sometimes, right? I think that investing is a lot more stable, right? Because you're ultimately not the one in the driver's seat. You're behind the driver on 20 different companies, right? So a lot of times, some companies are going well, some are not going so well. But, but you definitely are not the one that's all in on a single thing. So I, I do feel that the highs are definitely not as high, but you also don't have sort of those really sort of high anxiety, you know, challenging times that you have as, a, as an entrepreneur. And, and what made you decide to do that? I mean, jumping over the other side, you know, as I say, the dark side uh, as an investor, because I remember we talked about this and you were like, you hadn't decided, you're thinking about it, and then you ended up jumping in. I guess two-part question is like, what was, had you move in that direction as an investor? And two, how does being an entrepreneur, been in the trenches, how does that influence your style as an investor and how does it help you as an investor? I wanted to be close to founders and founding companies and sort of entrepreneurship in general. And I think one, one way to do that is for you to start a company or, or work at a startup. The, the other way is for you to support those companies in some way, right? And sort of I chose to do that through investing. So it lets me, to some extent, live vicariously through the founders and their experiences and sort of see that creative and sort of uh, exciting process that is founding a company and sort of growing a company. Obviously, it's not the same as doing it myself. You get the, the upside of, of doing that in parallel with sort of 10, 15, 20 different people at the same time. So it, 
I, I think that what I wanted to do was have the closeness to the entrepreneurial process, but also be able to have the have that experience across multiple different sectors with multiple different teams. I think that diversification, which I think as a as an investor comes in the form of your portfolio, I think was also something that attracted me, I think, intellectually or personally for me to always be thinking about different problems in different companies and in different sectors. So I don't know, I felt like that was a that was a good mix and, a, and sort of a good place for me to be given what I what I really liked doing. I decided to jump in and you know I've been doing it now for not that long but so far so good and I think it's that hypothesis that I would like those things is uh, has proven out to be the case so far. Your second question about being an entrepreneur and how that affects my style as an investor I would say a couple things and you know this as well as I do I think that being a founder CEO is very different than being at a startup or even being a, a co-founder at a startup. I think that once you're sitting in the driver's seat, I think that a lot of the pressure and a lot of the responsibility is on you. Um, and a lot of sort of the, the the leadership responsibility and sort of the responsibility for creating and defining culture is on you, much more than even any other co-founder to, to that extent. I think that having lived through that and seeing, you know, how you know what what I think I, I did well in the past and what I what I got wrong in the past. I think it helps me be a better partner and coach, I think, to, to founders that are maybe doing it for the first time or, or minimally help them and share with them like different ways that I either I've done it or I've seen other people doing it because I don't think that there's ever a, a single right way of doing something, but there's just different options and you need to make sure that you find the right way for, for you as a, as a leader and for you as a company. So I think that it, it helps, right? Because I can always pull out of my own bag of experiences, something that's usually analogous for any given experience. I think in terms of the the empathy that you have also for founders is very different, right? Like w- once you once you've seen how hard it is to be an entrepreneur and a founder, it gives you much greater appreciation for how hard it is that you know what people are doing and sort of oftentimes how how ambitious and brave and sort of courageous it is to have a big vision and sort of try to r- run after that. And, and I think that admiration makes it much more fun for me to work with people that are sort of going through that uh, adventure and sort of have that courage. So I personally enjoy that. And I think that the fact that I enjoy that and admire that, I think typically also plays in my favor because founders like people that have been through it before, right? And they know that it's hard. And being able to talk to someone that's been through it before and has that level of empathy is very different than someone that's always sat behind an Excel spreadsheet all their lives as, as an investor. So I think it's worked both well for me as a, as a coach and as a partner, but also as someone that ultimately founders want to have a, as an investor. I think that maybe where it has not served me well is that we all have our own battle scars, right? The things that we did and didn't work and that when we see someone else doing it, we think, oh, that's never going to work. I know how hard that is. That's impossible to do. So I think that things are usually impossible to do until someone goes and eventually does them. And I think having that those biases of what either worked for you or didn't work for you and kind of overweighing that your personal experience and applying it to the world is sort of a downside of being an investor. So I think at least what we try to do in, in Atlantico is we're very explicit about all the different biases that we have. And when we're talking about a company or analyzing a company, if we feel we're either overly excited about it or overly down on it, we try to see, you know, are we playing into some kind of decision bias or personal bias that we have when, when we look at it? Yeah, what would be like a, a bias that you would have, for example? I mean, in my case, I look at real estate and I know how hard it is sometimes. And I'm just like, it's funny, I made a lot of real estate investments because I think it's a big space and there's a lot of opportunity. But at the same time, 
I have scars from that. So I'm just like, oh, it's going to be hard. What are the things that you think twice about just because you have this bias that you recognize? In terms of biases, I think there's both like sort of sector biases, like you were describing, or, or even like business model biases. And then there's almost like these, I don't know, founder or team biases, let's say. Yep. So like from a sector bias, you know, I, with, with Pace Rubano, we had a very operationally heavy company that was like feet on the street, knocking on doors, like field salespeople, like just a lot of people knocking on a lot of small business doors, right? So when I see businesses that have sort of that level of operational complexity, I always sort of step back a little bit. And I'm like, oh man, like, I don't <laughs> think that these people like know what they're getting themselves into, right? <laughs> like, I think a very clear example of that is, is Rappi, right, out of Colombia. We all saw when they were raising their seed round and then their series A round, I think rounds that I think a lot of people looked at. And I remember myself saying like, oh, these guys are in Colombia. They're doing like supermarket delivery. They're going to go to Brazil. Like they have no idea what they're getting themselves into, right? Uh, and that was like just me overweighing my own bias and like sort of my own difficulty and, and oftentimes my own failures to say, well, if I didn't do it, like they're not going to be able to do it. But there they are, you know, they proved me wrong. And sort of that was a mistake in terms of not investing in that company. And I think that's a, that's a good example of a, of a company where, you know, I made a mistake of, of not investing because I, I thought that just because I couldn't do something, it, you know, another team wasn't going to be able to do it. And I think that they proved me wrong there. I think there's always biases that they go sort of in the other way. So having sort of grown companies, having to do turnarounds, having had a little bit of this roller coaster ride of, of startups also makes me always want to root for like the underdog. So whenever I see kind of like those resilient entrepreneurs that have been like hitting their head against the wall for like years and they won't give up and they just like, they just want to keep going. It's like, I always want to invest in those companies, but like from a much personal standpoint of like, I want to invest in that guy because he's going to show like the whole world that they were wrong and like he was right and this thing is going to really work. And kind of like you really want to root for their success because you know, you, you've once been, been that person and you sort of want to root for your, your past self. So that's also something where oftentimes I think about, oh, like I'm, I'm getting excited about a company that really I shouldn't be getting excited about. And it's just because I want to prove the world wrong, like alongside that entrepreneur that's, that's been so resilient. That, that's interesting. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that as one of those founders that was just like beat up pretty badly for a few years and you develop like a chip on your shoulder of like, you know, you get rejected so many times and then you want to just kind of come out on the other end. So that's interesting to hear. And talking about that operationally heavy, when you did the investment in Viveral, I remember dropping into Rio, you know, we had a call or something. You're like, come to the office. And you were in, uh, was it Laranjeras, that house there? The or, old like a school kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, or the school. Yeah. And I remember yeah, like just... Yeah seeing like this flood of people like coming in from lunch. I showed up, got there around 1130 and you were kind enough to buy me a turkey sandwich. And we sat down out in the little patio and there's like all these, a lot of people. And I remember a conversation we had also and around the, the operations, you would expect that most of the companies that you invest in have kind of a, a legal structure that for contracts, that's kind of more solid from that standpoint. I'm just curious how that looks like in, in actuality. Because I remember at Viveral, when we were starting, it's like bootstrapping a company early on, or you've raised a little capital. It's like, you have to make those decisions. It's like, save a little bit of money here, but there's a little bit of risk. How are the funds typically looking at that? Pejota versus Prolabore versus... So I think that there's... Um, like, like, I would separate it in terms of like, what's legal and what's illegal, right? So like, obviously, you don't want people to be breaking the law, right? Like, that's... 
like a very black and white thing. Yep. Um, and, then, and then there's things like this, which are like interpretations of tax law in a complex environment, right? Where it's, you know, probably, and, and it's like legal structure and a bunch of other things that are at play that I wouldn't consider to be illegal, but sort of like uh, financially risk, like these are like risky things to do because of the way that I think, uh, especially labor, sometimes tax, like law, and the judiciary in Brazil operates, right? So you're not breaking the law, but you're exposing yourself to some risk. I would equate it in the US like a lot of times for like liability risk that you might take. You didn't break the law, but because the US happens to be a very litigious country, you may be exposing yourself to liability by doing A, B, or C, right? What I would tell an entrepreneur, and I think this goes back to your like starting BVRL story, is like, you just have to do whatever it takes to get the company to work. Right. And if, if that's taking additional risk, like so be it. Right. Like you have to do whatever it takes to get the company to work and then to win. Right. And that's how I would prioritize it as an entrepreneur. I think that the, the entrepreneur is always going to be, is going to probably more, more often than not push the boundary of risk further than an investor and, and way further than, than a lawyer. Right. So, the last thing I would say is I, I wouldn't even ask the lawyers. Right. Cause that's kind of a, <laughs> that's not who you want to ask um, yeah. because they're paid to, show you what the liabilities are. As an investor, I think I just kind of go into it with eyes wide open, right? I, I understand that sometimes entrepreneurs may have made choices that are riskier than the most clean way of doing it. But that's a little bit of sort of par for the course, in my opinion. You know, take that into account. Of course, I'm going to consider that, look, one day, the same way that I had, that cost is, is going to come back and you're going to have to pay it. So you kind of have to keep it in your mind of, there's some liability here and I should kind of discount this from thinking about risk or thinking about price or thinking about any of these other things, but I'm not going to put it on the uh, sort of founder's shoulders to say, look, you made a mistake and I'm not going to invest in this company or not, or maybe make them operate in a way that is not the way that's going to help them win just because I want to cover my ass. Right. So, yeah. you know, I ultimately am in the business of investing in risky assets and this is another risk that, Sometimes can be mitigated, sometimes it can't, but I'm kind of there to understand what the risk is, talk about it with the entrepreneur, and ultimately back the entrepreneur in going, I think, the, the, the route that they want to go, as long as it's sort of obviously within the law and sort of within ethics and everything like that. No, that's interesting. I, out of curiosity, thought process, and as I start my own company, I'm, I lean much more on the side of less risk now because I went through the early stages of Viveral. We didn't have any money, and it's like, save everything you can within the bounds of the law. And ultimately, I cut corners in those things early because we didn't have any money. And actually, that resulted in me in costing a lot of money later because we didn't actually have the good advice in terms of the company structure. We were C-Corp, which was what all the US investors told us to do at the beginning. Ultimately, that wasn't the right corporate structure. So there are certain things that you need to invest in early to make sure that you're preparing yourself for the future. I have a, an episode on that where we talk about different structures and you know the Cayman and the Topco and the Delaware LLC and the local operating company. And if I would have known that, I would have saved company value in our transaction. These are all complicated things. And like you said before, there's no kind of perfect decision on these things, but you want to kind of figure out what the best path is for you and your circumstances. Right now, you're investing in later stage opportunities, right? Give us a quick overview of kind of where you're coming in right now maybe what the relationship it is to Canary. Marcos was on the podcast already. So we, you know, we had Canary on there, which you're a founder of. 
Give us a little bit of breakdown of like how the interaction of the two funds works. Give us a sense of where you are and kind of what you're looking for right now. Canary is focused on being first institutional check that a, a company raises. That's often the seed stage. Might be a company that bootstraps itself into the, the Series A. Could be even sort of a larger angel round of sorts, but it wants to be the first stage and first check into a company. With Atlantico, our focus is mostly, I would call it, at the Series B. But we'll do everything from Series A through C, depending on exceptions, right? So there's oftentimes exceptional Series A companies that we may want to invest in, or even Series C companies that maybe just took a little longer to start growing the way that we wanted to see that we may also invest. But we, we typically think that we come in probably two rounds after a Canary investment. That's a little bit just to kind of translate what our strategy is to the market, because I think it's, it's more easier to grok. The way we, we think about it internally is that we want to invest in companies that are you know, post-product market fit, right? So they, either they have like very clear product market fit that they've been able to show demonstrate, or they have sort of early signs that they're kind of on the brink of hitting product market fit and scaling. So we, we, we really want to invest at that inflection point, right, of company hitting product market fit and now looking to scale. There's oftentimes a company that's 20 to 30 people going to 2,000 people, right, that has a few million bucks of revenue and going to hundreds of millions of dollars to, uh, of revenue. So that's the inflection point that we invest. And sometimes that happens earlier in a company stage, and that could be a Series A that we decide to do because the company's hit that product market fit and is now ready to scale. And since it just takes longer, they might have to raise a few rounds before they get to that. So that's how we think about it internally. But we think it's going to shake out with probably most of our investments coming at the, at the Series B. And the geographic focus? We invest in Latin America but with a, a bias towards Brazil. So we think that maybe 75 to 80% of the deals will probably be in Brazil, but still about a quarter or so we think will come in you know, from places like Mexico or Colombia or Argentina or Chile, any of these big, big markets that you might have either very large local winners or, or more often than not, if we're investing, companies that we feel can be big continental winners. And how has it been, you start out as an angel investor You've been a prolific angel investor, investing in a lot of great companies. How does that compare to investing as a fund, either Canary or Atlantico? I think when you're invested like as an angel or at the seed stage, investment decision is probably like 90% based on the founder. It's very much thinking about that person and their sort of their vision of what this can become, their ability to communicate that vision for selling to partners, to clients, to you know, people they're going to raise money from. I think that when you start going a little later stage, especially a company like ours or a fund like ours that is looking for, for that, that product market fit, you need to look at the numbers and the results, right? Like the, the traction that you're looking at. And I think investing at, at our stage, I would say it's probably maybe still like 60% team, right? So it's still a majority team, but there's a big chunk, something like, 40 to maybe 50%, that's the results and the traction and the sort of the, 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 the numbers that you're seeing out of that company. Because that company will oftentimes be a company that, that's been around for somewhere between 12 to 36 months, right? A year to three years old. So even though you can't look at it like a public company and look at the discounted cash flows and it's not a true growth company in that sense, you already have the metrics, you see the unit economics, you see what the sort of the CAC and LTV and the revenue and, and whatever the right metric is, you see what the evolution of that is. But you don't have as much at the sort of angel and seed stage, but you have a lot as an, as an entrepreneur, right? Like I, 
I, I started and, and ran two different companies in two different sectors. I, you know, I worked at Facebook, which is a very data-driven company in a very different sector. So, you know, as a as an operator, I've seen what all those metrics look like. I can get really, really deep into the detail of how to look at them, how to analyze whether they're real or not, what's good quality, bad quality. So I feel like at the stage that you're looking at, at the earliest stages of series A through C, um, that kind of analysis is new for me as an investor, but very old for me as an operator and entrepreneur. That makes a lot of sense. When we look at a founder, if you were to be able to ask an early stage founder only one question, what would it be? I'd probably ask why you're building this. Like I, I try to get a lot into the kind of founding story and how the person ended up in that business and, and sort of the why, right? Like why is this important? So I think it gets a lot into like the motivation. Like the, the motivation is a little bit of the insight that that led this initial idea and sort of the insight that creates the vision, right? Because sort of the, the long-term vision is oftentimes I started something to solve my problem or a problem I saw in my company or that a friend had. Now that I've seen this, I feel like I can bring this solution to sort of the rest of the world. It's usually like something along those lines. So understanding the motivation and how I think genuine and authentic the entrepreneur is in trying to solve that problem and, and try to create and execute on that vision is a pretty critical thing. And I think that the motivation also gets to another element that I think is critical, but I wouldn't ask on the outright, which is the resilience and the determination of the founder, right? You want to invest in those people that are kind of unstoppable, right? And they're going to go to every length and they're never going to give up to sort of make this thing a success and understanding what's be, like what's in it for them and why do they start this thing is a good starting point of understanding like whether they're going to have that, that ability to go the distance. And even I think also when you ask the why, is often when you get the passion out of people, right? Like, what, why are they excited about it? And I think when people describe why they're excited about it, it's like when you really see their, almost like their, sa- like their sales ability shine. And, and I think every entrepreneur and every, every CEO is a, is a salesperson because you are selling that vision to your people that you're hiring, to your investors, to your partners, and seeing you sort of at your prime of, of excitement and selling that vision is kind of what I want to see to be able to judge whether that vision is compelling and you communicate it in a compelling way. Also, when I look at a founder, I'm like, oh, there's an inevitability about this founder, right? Like where it's, they're not going to stop until they get what they're setting out to achieve. On the flip side, what are those negative signals that you see where you're just like, I'm going to pass on this? What jumps out at you on that? Oftentimes, the reasons that I, I would not invest in something, I mean, so first of all, like the reason you, you or I, I would maybe not invest in something is usually like a market size thing. So mm-hmm. it's usually look this thing, even if they, they do a great job, it's just not going to be big enough. Uh, mm-hmm. because you need to get those huge venture scale returns, right? Like when we're investing in something, we're looking for this thing to become 20, 30x the, the money we're putting in, right? So that's not, not, not many markets have that, that kind of uh, upside. So uh, that's the first thing. And, and that's not necessarily a, a knock on the founder nor, nor anything else, right? It's just the market is selected. On the team, usually it's trying to understand like their ability to execute on, on that vision. Assuming the vision is big and the market opportunity is big, and that could be something where you feel maybe the depth of thinking is just not there. Like they just haven't thought about it enough, right? Like I should never ask a question that the founder has never thought about and doesn't have a great answer for and sort of can answer in a hundred different ways because they stay up at night without being able to sleep, kind of thinking through it. So uh, if that's happening, there's there's something that I, I think is probably wrong in terms of how, I don't know how they've thought about it, or, or maybe it's just we're, we're not going to be compatible as investor and, and founder. So that's oftentimes what we see is just not that same kind of maybe breadth 
and depth of thinking that we would like. I think the other thing is founders that are kind of, they're not all in, right? They, they kind of, they're like, there's a little bit of optionality there of, oh, like I did this because I like didn't have another option or like, you know, I did this because my friend started a company and it was kind of cool. Like, like you can tell the people that aren't really all in and this isn't like their life's work uh, and they aren't driven by it or, or people that are oftentimes like they're just in it for the money. Um, because one of the big risks, I think, as a venture investor you have is, is of companies selling early, right? And you need to be able to judge whether someone that's just in it for the money, someone comes around, makes them a good offer, they're going to make you know tens of millions of dollars, which is a, a ton of money, and then they're going to go and retire and live in Orlando or Miami or whatever it is, because that's their life's goal. That's not what you want, right? You want someone that's going to turn down that offer and kind of go all in over and over again because they want to build sort of the biggest standing company in, in that sector. And, and it's not, and the money is really secondary to that, to that goal. So maybe that's a little bit of the, the other things I think that often will maybe kind of turn me off a little bit. Yeah. I remember catching up with you in the lobby at our shitty office in Rua da Consolação. Edith was there too. Edith also, uh, just for the audience to know, Edith, you know, you're married to Edith. You guys are a couple and she worked with me at Viveral. And I remember you were visiting and you know, at the time, all my engineers were Colombian. You remember the, the team we had. I didn't have a CTO. And I brought a CTO from India, and or I was planning on bringing it. He'd worked for a bunch of big tech companies, eBay and Akamai. He hadn't been to Brazil. And frankly, I completely underestimated the cultural barriers. And you warned me, you're like, Brian, this is not going to work. You literally said that. And of course, like headstrong entrepreneur, I'm like, no, we're going to get like, it's going to work. This guy's got amazing experience. You were totally right. It was a, a complete disaster. So as a founder, you have a good insight or even the business. Those are things that you might be able to see. How do you approach that as an investor where you can't be steering the ship from the shore? You know, so how do you strike a balance between giving advice and communicating a really strong opinion? That's a good point because you do have this... I mean, I think if you as an investor just have it very clear in your mind that a founder is making a mistake, you have a responsibility to you know, your own investors, to the company, and I think probably more than anyone else to that founder to sort of really tell it how it is and be very forceful in that messaging, right? So if I was your board member, right, and I saw you doing that, like hiring someone that sort of, for me, was crystal clear that wasn't going to work out, it, was, it would be my responsibility to be like, really kind of be that pain in the ass in the board meeting that you would want to kind of move on to the next topic. And I would probably want to keep bringing that topic back up. And then I would call you afterwards and kind of discuss it and kind of almost convince you to show you what I knew. Uh, but ultimately, if you say, Julio, just stop talking about it. This is how I want to do it. And, you know, my company, I want to go forward. I, I have to just kind of, you know, shut up, right? So it's like the disagree and commit, right? Um, and, and I have to be okay with that. I think that there's some other things that are like less clear, like that I might have a different opinion than you. And in those cases, is I think my responsibility to share my opinion and sort of the logic behind it, just in the way that any employee should, should be doing that. Not necessarily try to convince you, but just show you that there's other ways or maybe other ways of thinking about it. And I do think that good founders, they are also seeking good thought partners that are going to debate ideas and sort of debate it on the merits and, and on the logic. And they're open to changing their mind, right? And me as an investor, I should be open to changing my mind. If you also can argue for, for your way in a different way. But again, always remembering that that's not my company, right? I'm not the one in the driver's seat. 
So I'm responsible for pointing out that there is a deer right in front of there, 100 feet in front of your car on this icy road, you know, screaming louder and louder as you get closer to that deer. But I'm not going to jump in and sort of pull the handbrake to do it. So hopefully you'll do that beforehand. Plus, that would probably make your car spin out and you would... (laughs) Sorry, I didn't mean to pick on your analogy, but I totally agree. And it's interesting because... I've been thinking a lot about like really good founders and it's like the question across my mind is like, are really good founders, are they coachable in general? Some founders I've talked with, like they're so strong-headed about what they're doing. So do you think good founders are in general, are they coachable? That's a good question because I see the two sides of it. I do think that some really good founders are arrogant, right? Like they want to prove the world wrong, right? And they want to they're very stubborn, right? And they're, they're headstrong. And that's a little bit of part of their resilience. That's like a little bit of part of their, let's call it their charm, right? Of why people want to go work with them because they have strong opinions and they're very kind of forceful about them. And I do often think that some of the kind of the world's best companies, at least when we read about them anecdotally, they were founded by people like that. So I do, I do think that there is a space for that, especially when that founder has a lot of authority in that space, either because they're very intelligent or insightful about the product, right? If it's just a really great product visionary, or someone just has a lot of history and sort of background in it, and they kind of really have a, a very specific vision that they want to drive towards almost like at all costs. And I do think that you you can, let's say, influence them in those cases. So maybe you can kind of nudge the ship in one direction or the other. And I don't think anyone is completely closed off to any opinion. So maybe your, your ability to influence them will be, will be less. And I think you as an investor maybe should be open to influencing them or like knowing that you'll be able to influence them a little bit less. And that's part of the appeal is the strength of character and, and vision. Again, it's more of a style thing, right? That are honestly trying to figure things out and figure the right model and figure the right, I don't know, go to market or scaling strategy and whatnot. And they really want to discuss things with their management team and with their co-founders and with their investors. Personally, I, I like the second one better, like just from a personal standpoint, but I don't know, know if necessarily the second example will lead to better returns than the first, right? Like the better returns might just be kind of not the, necessarily the genius, but sort of that visionary founder that's very strong headed, doesn't care at all what I think and just drives through a wall and makes things happen. And I'd be happy to invest in that situation as well. I think, I think an important thing is to have very clear expectations of what like you both expect from each other in this relationship. And if one side isn't comfortable with what the other one's expectation is, then maybe it's not the right relationship to start, right? So if I do see a founder that says, I'm building it this way, and this is my vision, and like, kind of, this is what I'm going to do. And I say, okay, like, I'll be there. And like, I buy that. And I'll be here supporting you. I then have to kind of stick also by my word of saying, I'm buying into your vision, and let's do it. And if I, for some reason, change my mind, I should obviously be very vocal about that. But unless it's something, I would say almost extreme, right? Where almost this person is like breaking the law or destroying the company in a very visible or clear way, I should kind of just almost get out of the way, right? Yeah, it's interesting to think about it and be interesting to see some of the data around that. I'm kind of undecided on it. I also prefer obviously someone that can take some feedback, but there's been times where certain founders that I think are really incredible, like they're so clear in what they want that I just kind of get out of the way. I think that we, Pace made a big mistake, which was to expand out of Brazil. So we had this ambition of like, oh, let's go and be like big in all of Latin America. And we, and we expanded to six different countries, right? 
And I think that when we decided to make that expansion, and then eventually when we doubled down by making a big acquisition somewhere else, I think that some investors, some members of the board, they didn't think it was a good idea. I mean, at least they, they told me afterwards. And, and <laughs> thank and you time, afterwards. <laughs> yeah, and, but I think at the time the company—it's it, very hard, right? Because at the time the company was just going so well, right? Everything was going well. All the metrics were going well. The growth was there. I was very sure of that the decision that that was what we wanted to do. So it's hard also to say, look, everything's going well, and like you've done everything pretty well so far, but like this thing, you're making a big mistake. And I think that. Maybe they raised a few questions, but they definitely weren't as forceful as they as they should have been, given how they thought. I this is one investor that um we, we had a talk about a bunch of different things and and he said, look, I, I really should have been more forceful about that. And and I think at the time it's it's difficult to do that, but I do think your responsibility as an investor is to question things, right? And to make sure that the company is doing the right thing. And even if the decision that is decided on is, is the same one that was originally brought up. At least it being really thoroughly debated is is important to make sure that that you're all comfortable and and kind of everyone's sure that of what they're doing. At what point in a startup do boards start to matter? I think boards matter from the beginning. It's just a question of how good your board is, right? If you have a shitty board, then the board's not going to matter because you're going to have. I think that a lot of times, a lot of investors they think of themselves as being entrepreneur friendly or like they're pro CEO or like they're supporting the CEO and and they ultimately become cheerleader board members, right? Where the CEO will present some stuff, they'll say, great job, this is good. And like, that's not helpful to the company, right? Like you're not there to be, you know, massaging the CEO's ego, right? And I think that if you are a good board member, minimally, you'll be, you know, asking hard questions, you'll be doing the homework to, push the thinking further. I think you'll be giving negative or constructive negative feedback like when it's warranted. And, you, and you'll be very clear and transparent and honest with the, the founder right, at, at those board meetings to really question the strategy. And I think that that level of debate and that level of questioning is what pushes the company to be you know, 10% better or 20% better. So I do think the board, whether it's at the meeting or not, but I think more often than not, it's at the meeting, can make the company sort of strive for something a little further they would normally do. I think early stage founders don't understand boards very well. If I look back to like the early board meetings I had, I remember something really clear where it's like, I brought on the investors and then I found like every board meeting, I was kind of like selling the company. And what people need to realize, you're a founder, they're already investors. But there is a balance there because you don't want them to like stop believing in your company if things aren't going well, right? Because you want them to have continued support. And so where is the level of vulnerability that you have with your investor? Shit's hard. There's moments not going very well. At what point do you totally open up to all the difficulties versus not wanting to lose the confidence of your main supporters? You should be very transparent about what's going on and what's in your head as a founder to your board. I don't see huge downside in that. I think that the worst is like the company's not doing well and you're like, yeah, everything's going well. And then you imagine like how bad these are, right? And I think I would lose much more confidence in thinking like, oh, things are going bad. And the CEO is completely clueless about like what's going on and what to do. I think that like things are going bad and the CEO is like actively trying to figure out what to do. I think that that, and that might be personal to me. I don't know if this necessarily applies to other investors, but I would get more engaged and be like, okay, they're asking for help. Like, 
let's kind of let's all like all hands on deck. Let's try to, you know, figure this out. And maybe it's like back to the beginning of our conversation talking about sort of my bias of like the the underdog bias, right? Like I, I like to cheer for the underdog. And like when I see someone like in trouble or, or like not going the best moment, I think, in their startup career, I like to also sort of be more active and more present to try to help them get out of that. And I think that as a board member, that would probably pull at those desires. Like it, it's kind of interesting because maybe this is a little bit of sort of like my half brain as an entrepreneur sort of pulling almost like on an emotional level to like be supportive and kind of help out and sort of help make this thing work out and sort of your other side of the brain which is sort of the very cold calculating sort of investor brain uh, might just be like this company's a loss like cut your losses focus your time on your winners right because that's that's the rational thing to do the long term and if you think about being an investor in the long term which i i will be Oftentimes, how you behave in those sort of down cycles and those downtimes that sort of are the moments that really define the reputation that you're going to have. And sure, maybe that company is, is not going to work or it's not going to you know, get out of that, that moment. But I think you'll have an ally in that, that CEO that's going to sort of build that reputation for you and it's going to help you win sort of that next great deal that maybe will be sort of that really memorable company. Who is that person for you at Pesci where things ended up blowing up Beaver out, we had moments of difficulty, and there's certain people that just like you learn a lot about someone, how they behave in really difficult moments. When everything's going great, board meetings are a lot of fun. Yay, everyone's, you know, kind of happy about things. Was there someone that in your journey that you look to and you're like, well, this person, thick or thin, they're just like, well, to kind of keep their composure? So, so you look at Pacey, actually, our, our investors were, were generally. Uh, like very positive and, and productive, I think even in, in the downtimes. Yeah, you know, I don't. I don't think that they were ever aggressive or like. I don't think they were ever unproductive in in that way. I, I do think that at, at times when the company wasn't doing well, a bunch of them. I'd probably say the majority of them like were fairly checked out. Right, we're sort of like, oh, I got to go to this board meeting. This company's not doing well. Like, I don't really want to be here, but I have to be here. You know, and I think that's natural. And and I think it happened with with basically everyone. And then I think when there were critical moments, whether it's like our comeback or even like the company might go under, then I think people kind of like lean in a little bit more and they engage. In our case, they were very supportive of, I think, the tough moments and the tough decisions. They sort of tried, they kind of wanted us to do the right things. Um, I, I think that maybe the investor that, especially in the downtimes, was like the most helpful was probably Mickey Malka, who today is running uh, Ribbit. Right back then, he he had he had been an angel investor in Pesci, and then he was our independent board member. And I think because he had suffered through kind of thick and thin in his own companies and had been a, a serial founder before, I think a lot of the more personal or like the more more harder um, decisions that I had to make, like he would be the person I would call and get his his advice. He's also very like honest and transparent, right? Like he's not. I knew that if I asked him for something, he wouldn't say something he didn't believe, right? He'd be very like transparent with his feedback. And, and that's what I wanted, right? Like I wanted like someone to help me be better, not like make me feel better. Uh, and I think, and I knew that I could, and I could go to him for that. And, and, and he always delivered. That's it. Ironically, that's on my short list. Also the same person that I call. So it's funny to compare notes here. And Mickey's listening. Like I can actually, I have a few quotes from Mickey transitioned out of the, the CEO role. Actually, I remember talking to you about that. And you were like, hey, you got to rip the Band-Aid off. I remember you told me that. Like we had a breakfast one time and I ended up disappearing for a little while. Like left the, went to Rio and like watched the Olympics and Lucas kind of jumped in and removed myself. And that was advice that you gave me. But 
in the same line of thinking, Mickey was like, don't try to steer the ship from the shore. It's funny that you say that. It's great to have those people where you can call and share the real deal with, right? Because I do think that's a hard thing. You know, you as an investor, having been through a lot of difficult moments and challenges, puts you in an amazing position to have empathy. I think going back to what we started the conversation with around empathy of the situation, that's what really makes an incredible investor. Who was going to be your investor that was the most uh, helpful with the downtimes? I guess it was different. And you don't have to include it if you don't. I guess it was different phases. Mickey was a a big person I would call a lot. I would call Kevin Efrazi too. Different calls, difficult stuff. Greg Waldorf was also a really good resource in multiple occasions on difficult situations. He was a board member. And so he was like more kind of active. But when I wanted someone like more further away from the situation sometimes just to get a more outside perspective, those are two people that I would call. There's probably a, a few other people, but it's amazing to have those people in your back pocket. And I guess like, there was anyone like uh, like destructive in a board context where they like created problems? Not in a board context. I was pretty fortunate. I think there was some difficult moments when people felt insecure about the stuff, you know, what was going on. And maybe they didn't know how to react. And usually it wasn't necessarily their fault. A lot of times it was my mismanagement of the situation. I try to practice not pointing fingers because when you point a finger, you have three fingers pointing back at you. And usually you're just kind of not taking responsibility for your part. So I didn't have any, anyone that was like blatantly destructive, but there was obviously some challenging moments in the journey, kind of inevitable. I think my situation was a little bit more difficult in the last couple of years because we merged with another company, right? So we had a complete set of different histories of companies. And it's like Curiciano with Sao Paulo in the same team all of a sudden. And it's hard to get along because there's a, a whole history. So that was really hard. And I mean, there was a few clashes there that ultimately I had to learn. And I remember some advice from Kevin. It was like, hey, it's going to be really hard. This is going to be super hard. And he kind of like predicted what was going to happen. And he was kind of right about most everything. So I think that having those people that are really, really valuable, that have been through so much, and you're one of those people now, like you've seen so much so that you pattern recognition on what's coming. And then you help the entrepreneur navigate is super critical role. And it's something that I try to do with, you know, founders that I've invested in. Let's go back a few months. I mean, everybody is asking everyone, everyone's all of a sudden a specialist in COVID last couple months, right? Like everyone's asked their opinion about what's the future of work and what's going to happen. There was a chat a couple months ago, several other investors talked about the pandemic's impact in the ecosystem and a survey that you conducted related to fundraising in 2020 it's four months later. I'd love to get your perspective on how things have changed. What do you think the investor sentiment has been lately? And what do you think it'll be moving forward? Of the, of the market as a whole? Yes. I feel like when the pandemic really became a reality, a lot of folks stopped investing, right? Like they kind of like held back and they were like, okay, like we got to figure out what's going on, which is, which is sort of the rational thing to do. It's like you're waiting for more information. And I just think that some people waited longer than others. Some funds probably even still to this day are are like very uh, gun shy in terms of how aggressive they want to be and what they want to invest in or not. But I I do think that now, relatively back to normal, I would say, as far as their investing pace, how much they're looking after companies, what they're analyzing. I, I feel that most people think it's relatively back to normal. Of course, some markets have really benefited from the the pandemic and some have really 
gotten hurt by it. And I don't think it's like a bias that investors have pro or con, just the reality, right? So you, you have to shape your investment decisions based on what the new reality is um, and which markets have grown faster than you would have expected and those that have grown less fast than you expected. Um, but I do think people are, are deploying capital. I think that the you know, valuations probably took a hit, I'd say, I don't know, 10, 20% lower in reals, right? So in, in dollars, because the exchange rate went like completely crazy, right? So you have to think about like same country currency, like 10, maybe 15% lower, but not a ton lower, right? That's like a fairly small adjustment. Um, so, so I think we're almost back to normal as far as both the mentality of most investors, but also even like prices and sort of deal dynamics that you're seeing. Most people thought that it would last like a year or so before we got back to like something normal. It looks like it'll be kind of four to six months before we get back, back to normal. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I'm on the board of a few companies and it was like the sky was falling, right? Because every investor is like, okay, plan for the worst, which is the right thing to do, right? You don't want to overly bullish on a recovery because you win nothing in that case. But I do think that there are some companies that could accelerate through the turn based on food delivery or your e-commerce or education, probably looking pretty good in terms of in one of those sectors because they're heating up those areas. We saw a lot of, I think, and did you think we, we saw a lot of advice that was being given that was kind of generic advice, right? Of yeah. just like preserve cash, c- costs, like, uh, you know, yeah. all this kind of stuff. And I think we, we talked about it in that, in that one uh, sort of live that I, I do think that like every company has a different situation, right? And you can't take these like general statements. Like one of our first investments was in a company called Tribe, which is doing like, education right for like basically helps train software engineers and is like a distance learning uh, yep. uh model is and it a uh, income share agreement it's one of the options is an income share agreement like so yeah. it has that it has like you can pay for it you can have like a corporate sponsor but it's like it's like that but that that is a big piece of it right yeah um and it's like none of that advice applies to them right like yeah. they've seen demand like skyrocket from students and employers Right, because yeah. you have this like greater digitalization of the economy, so you have more people that want to work those jobs, more people that want to hire those jobs. There's a huge deficit of it, so it's like I don't know. My, our advice was always, and and I think the founders already had this mindset of like this is your moment to really shine, right? Like you're not going to have this kind of window again. Like step on the gas pedal, and and in fact, actually ended up raising more money, right? So they raised more money in the middle of the pandemic to say I want to kind of just drive forward. And really double down on this. And, and I think that if they had just said, oh, let's wait, wait it out, they would have lost a very valuable window of time that they were able to capitalize on. You know, interestingly, those founders, this is their second company. They had sort of a, a first successful exit in the education space. They've been working together in the past. So I do think kind of that maturity, understanding that things move in cycles. This is a, a hard time, but we need to understand what, what our uniqueness is. And having, I think, the confidence and courage to kind of accelerate things, I think is you know, part of the reason why, why they were able to be successful in this period of time. Yeah. And there's a probably butcher the quote because it's in Portuguese. I'm going to translate into English, uh, something around paraphrasing Senna when it's a sunny day out, you know, on the track, you're maybe past one or two cars, but when it's pouring rain and storming, you can pass 15 cars. Right. So I guess that that backdrop uh, allows for an accelerated and you can really put your foot on the gas if you're in the right spot. By the way, I also invested in a, a company similar in Mexico called Academlo. Shout out to George if he's listening. He's building, the, building something similar to Tribe in Mexico. Fechar con Xavi Giordo. You've been on both sides of the table as an investor, as a founder. 
And what is your ideas about how we can expand the market of entrepreneurs going after big ideas? What's your kind of closing advice to those founders that are listening? A bit of your wisdom and ideas on how do we elevate this ecosystem in Latin America? Because if you look at a market like China, I was talking with Marcos the other day and he said, Canary is like the number of companies that are being founded, the number of companies that reach out to Canary. It's like the seed fund in China that's similar gets like 100 to 200 times more startups approaching them. How can we close the gap in Latin America? I think it's twice the size of India, yet there's double the amount of funding going to Indian startups. So what, where's the opportunity and how do we close that gap? I have a little bit of a um, different view of, you know, I, I think we're doing a pretty good job. You know, I, I think that there's like a good volume of startups and more people going into tech companies and those companies are growing well. And I think like everything is going in the right direction. I, I, like, I don't think there's any like issues. I just think that these things take time, right? Like you can't go from, you know, 20 startups to 20 million startups overnight. And, and the fact that if you look at, for example, you mentioned funding, right? Funding doubled this year versus last, last year versus the one before, the one before. It doesn't have to go 10x one year over year, right? And like a good 100% year over year growth rate, which is crazy, right? It's a huge growth rate. And you think about that compounding year over year, like you eventually get to something pretty big when you think about around 2030. So I, I think we're on the right, I think we're on the right track. And I, and I think that everyone's kind of doing the right thing, like the capital is going in the right direction, the labor is going in the right direction, the education, I think the ecosystem of having different cycles, right, of companies, of people that graduate from school, they go work at Vivoreal, they learn how to become a, whatever, a product manager or a software engineer, Vivoreal has a successful exit, they make money, they go to their next startup as a founder or as a founding team member. Like these things, like just, they don't happen overnight, right? They, they take five years, there are five year cycles of these learnings or three to five year cycles. So for you to have a few of these happen, it just takes a while. Think, think back, right? Like I started you know, Patriot Bond in 2010. So that's, you know, about 10 years ago. Um, at that point, we were probably the kind of, we were the probably the first of this, you know, new wave of startups post uh, like dot-com boom of like the late 90s. Um, so if you think about 2010 and companies that had these like five-year cycles, like now you're starting to see people that are going on to their second sort of their second challenge, right? And, and, and that already means that you have second-time founders, which is something we didn't have really five years ago. We have people that are, you know, uh, uh, kind of senior middle managers or senior, uh, like, top-level managers that are going to building companies. And those are just cycles that take a little while to happen. Okay, final answer. I know I said that was Shabby Giordo, but it, from 20 years from now, what do you want your Wikipedia page to say? I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, have, I don't think I have a Wikipedia page. I don't really necessarily care, care to have one. Uh, you know, every once in a while, you probably get these same emails that I do, right? You get these spammers that are like, we get you on Wikipedia, you know? And then you go and visit other people's pages and you're like, oh, this is clearly created by one of these like uh, email spammers that makes a Wikipedia page for you. And I, I've never really had a need to be on Wikipedia or say anything like, you know, grand about me. I, I think that I probably care more for maybe people that I that either like work with me or that I you know invested in or maybe you know mentored in some way that they say oh yeah like back then like I met this guy Julio and he you know taught me this or he gave me this advice and you know I sort of I did that and kind of my life is right like I kind of almost I want to make a kind of a little nudge on I think a lot of people's lives in a way that they that they remember 
not necessarily in a public way, but the kind of that they go and they tell like people that they go and do the same thing too. You know, kind of they kind of you know pay it forward in some way, and maybe you know they keep in the back of their mind that they're doing it for that second time because I once did it. You know, in in their favor a long time before that. That's a perfect way to finish because last night I had dinner with a woman by the name of Gina Gotthilf. Do you know Gina? Oh uh, yeah, I do. She worked at, at Duolingo. She ran growth there, took Duolingo from 300 million uh, users. And she told me that she was hosting an event, I think for Tumblr, when she was working at Tumblr. And she, all the bureaucracy of Brazil, you know, US company, they were hosting a party and she could not get the money into Brazil. And you loaned her the money, man. You loaned her the money along with her dad to finance the party that she was having at the last minute and so she told me that story last night as we had dinner in Sonoma, uh, social distancing. But I think the quintessential kind of like Julio move is you did that. This is like almost 10 years ago. You've always been someone that's really helped the ecosystem out and helped elevate the ecosystem. And so I think we can end on, I think that's Xavi Giordo right there. So uh, yeah. thank you for everything you've done for, you know, for the ecosystem and continue to do. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for the interview. And, and if I could just tell another little anecdote, I know we're like way over time, but you know, it's, and I think it's the, the key thing there, I think, is that you, you can often do things that are, that are helpful to people. And I think that if they go and they take that and they're kind of helpful to other people and they keep it in mind and they, you know, they do it because of that, I think that, that, that maybe that answers your question of how do you get the ecosystem to be big and flourishing is sort of paying it forward and kind of being part of that community. I do think that the other thing, and I, I'm a very big believer, I don't want to say karma because I don't really believe in karma, but it's like, I, I believe in the kind of, if you do good things, like kind of good things will kind of come back to you in general. Right. And, and just to give you kind of close that story out and she probably doesn't know how this ended, but you know, we made this big loan to Tumblr, right. So basically keep the company afloat. Otherwise this whole party would have gone under and it was a little bit non, uh, non kosher for our company to just make a random loan to some other random company, but we, <laughs> but we did it anyway. And Many years later, I started another company, right? Prefer. And one of my angel investors was David Karp, who's the founder of Tumblr. And one of the first times that I met David, I told him, you know, when you launch in Brazil, your company was bankrupt and we wrote a check to kind of keep your party afloat. And he said, I remember that. I remember that that almost totally blew up, whatever. And I don't know, have any idea whether he invested in my company or not because of that. And I told it more as just like a funny story because it was such a funny story anyway. Uh, but I think at least it kind of, it made him seem he in a good light, right? Of like, oh, okay, this is like that guy. He sort of, you know, was help, was helpful to us in the past when he wasn't expecting anything back. And I think it just kind of creates goodwill in the community, you know? And it's kind of funny how that en and ended up coming back to me in the form of a angel check from the, the founder of Tumblr, David. I guess that's what you call kind of manufacturing serendipity, right? And so I, I, I'm a big believer in that. And that's kind of one of the things that I'd like to do with this podcast and what I'm going to do with Latitude, reach back, help the next entrepreneur build the next iconic company and do a small, tiny part to be along the journey is, is kind of a privilege for me. So I want to thank you for your support over the years. You definitely took a bet on me and you vouched for me. You helped kind of the positive signaling and you also gave me great advice over the years. So paying it forward is something that I think usually has an incredibly good ROI. It's the right thing to do, but you end up benefiting from it. So I think that's fantastic. So thanks a lot for the chat. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Julio Vasconcelos, co-founder of Peixe Urbano, Canary, and Atlantico. Each week, we'll be talking to great founders and investors like him 
So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and check out Latitude.com to find more information about the Latitude Fellowship Program. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Until next time.